Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail, and today we enter into the world of food alternatives. I spoke with Adam Maxwell. He's the CEO of Voyage Foods, which makes, among other things, a peanut-free peanut butter alternative. I am fascinated by Voyage's ambitions because it's trying not to be like, say, the next Oatly, but as bigger, more ubiquitous ideas about how to enter into the overall food space. And one of Voyage's biggest facets to its sales strategy is B2B sales. For instance, it doesn't want to just be available in supermarkets, which it currently is available in some supermarkets, but wants to partner with some of the biggest CPG brands so that they can make products that have peanut-free peanut butter, cocoa-free chocolate, coffee-free coffee, etc. It's it's kind of boggles your brain when you think about it, but makes sense. Um, these are all personally things that I just love to nerd out on. There is the whole food alternative side of things. Uh, it's a growing part of the industry, and there are just endless types of brands that are trying to do that. There are also consumption trends, what people are eating and why. Um, and then there's also one of my favorite things, which is an unsexy sales model like business to business. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first, tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you and how did Voyage Foods come along? Yeah, so I'm, you know, I think at my most fundamental level of food dork, uh, <laughs> started working in kind of high-end restaurants as a cook at 14, worked as a cook, you know, high school, university, ended up working in big food for a few years, large-scale chocolate manufacturing, etc. cetera. Uh, and, you know, the more involved I got, you know, really in the chocolate space and, you know, a lot of these like large-scale food commodity sectors, um, the more I thought that, you know, the current precedent, the current way things are done aren't necessarily the way that we can do forever. And, you know, I think the real idea of Voyage Foods started, you know, with really looking at the chocolate and coffee commodity spaces, right? Um, there are horrible environmental implications of those industries today, whether it be water usage, um, total GHG impacts, you know, the you know, horrific uh, child and slave labor in some of those industries, all the way to, you know, these, you know, very inequitable value chains where the people really producing these commodities, you know, don't take at home any of the kind of what the final value of what we purchase at the grocery store, right? Um, and you know, I think some of the most terrifying, but, you know, important facts are really, you know, one of these stats in the coffee space of in 2050, we'll have a third of the supply of coffee, like industrial agricultural coffee, and 3x the demand, right? And it's one of those things of there are a lot of nice-to-haves in the food tech space, but really, like, can we, you know, replicate these commodities with really uncertain futures in the need-to-have space also, you know? Because, you know, I'm a food dork, love, love food, love chocolate, and I think a lot of this is the accessibility piece of how do we really ensure these foods are available for everyone forever. Got it. So pretty much the idea was it's uh, uh, the, these mass products have an unsustainable future and you're trying to figure out a way so that you can replicate them but not have the same supply chain, essentially? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, if you think of a chocolate bar, right, it tastes nothing like the c cacao seed that it comes from, right? Uh, the thing that we know and love of a chocolate bar is derived from process, not the actual input. And so that's kind of the whole premise of the company of whether we're making peanut butter without the peanut allergens or whether we're making, you know, 
climate-friendly and humanitarian-friendly chocolate that can be available for for everyone. It's just the same kind of principle of we're just going to take different inputs and have the same final output. Um, and I think one of the things that's really interesting and different of what we're doing versus a lot of the food tech space is it's all kind of very clean label, very approachable ingredients. Um, yeah. So are all of, for all of the products, are the ingredients coming from the same source or is the tying bind just that they're not the ori- original referent? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they'll, they'll all have different ingredients in them, some similar. Um, but yeah, there's no, you know, one specific ingredient that we can turn into anything. Um, that'd be incredible if that was possible. Maybe some, some people <laughs> smarter than us will figure that out. Uh, but no, that, that's not what we're doing. Like, how long has this idea sort of been percolating in your head? And what was the process by which getting it from the ideation stage to the products that you have now? Yeah. Um, so a, a little backstory from there. Uh, I came from, right before this, a uh, molecular wine and spirits company called Endless West. Uh, Endless Matt West makes uh, award-winning wine without grapes, award-winning uh, whiskey without barrel aging. Um, and I think my time there was really, you know, the impossible really is possible. And there are people in the food tech space that are making food that's highly scalable, cost pragmatic, um, and really solving, you know, I- important fundamental business issues that a lot of the food tech space hadn't done. Um, and yeah, I think it was really born out of that, you know, in the Bible, it's biblical, right? Jesus turned water into wine. I'm not a religious person, <laughs> but, you know, we were doing things, you know, that, yet, you know, these Messiah-type people have done, right? And did those in a really beautiful and impactful way. And from there, it was really, you know, I'd started working in pastry at a young age. And I think the more and more time I'd spent in the chocolate industry, I was like, oh, like, this is going to be like one of those things that we just can't have forever, right? Um, And it was really just kind of those two things, mixing of the background in chocolate, uh, intermingling with, you know, all this research on molecular beverages and spirits of, hey, like we can apply this same type of knowledge and ethos and approach um, to very different commodity sects and, you know, solve these kind of huge problems so we can continue eating this stuff in 50 years. Got it. And so what was the initial formulation? How did you figure out what, like, you know, you you clearly have a food tech background. Was it just you got the best minds in the room and said, we're going to make chocolate? Like, or how did you, how did you come up with the first formula? That's a fantastic question. Um, I think, you know, uh, as a whole, you know, our kind of scientific approach is really, you know, based on this, you know, fundamental principle of so many of these foods and food products we love are completely dependent on the process that goes into them, not the input. And so from there, we'll do kind of these molecular mapping exercises, everything from a raw coffee cherry all the way to a finished cup of coffee. And, you know, what compounds are being created, right? What precursors are being eliminated? What do those reaction profiles look like? So at some point, you you know, these are this kind of starting materials you probably need to have, right? These are type of precursors. Um, and at that point, it's really, you know, us looking at where in the world can we find, you know, inputs that are radically more environmentally friendly and lower cost. So when we treat them in similar but different ways, we can get those final products. Um, so, yeah, there was no, uh, it's not like baking a gluten-free cookie where you're just like, <laughs> oh, well, I need something, you know, that has some elasticity in it and we'll, we'll punch back a little in kneading and hold air. Um, yeah, so there's no real easy linear, but it 
it, it was a lot of uh, rigorous, robust, frustrating science. You know, it's not pretty. It's, it's you know, not this beautiful escalation of knowledge, et cetera. Um, a lot of my pants are probably still stained from fat from those years. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your first three products were peanut butter, chocolate, and coffee. Is that correct? Yeah. And when did so? And it took about, can you just give me the timeline of, you said, uh, you know, in 2021 is when you raised your seed round. How long until you were, you had, you know, an MVP? Uh, probably like six, six to eight months. Um, yeah, probably took six to eight months till we had something that was like, people would taste it blind and understand, like, think it's the real thing. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. not statistically a hundred percent, but yeah, probably six, six, eight months. Uh, and in that first year, we, we built our first factory. I'm sitting in it right now in West Oakland, California. And then probably a year and a half in is when we kind of launched the, you know, peanut free spread online. So, um, this is what I wanted to ask, or what I'm really interested to know is because you have, it's a really fascinating company of really cool products, but, uh, it's an interesting marketing proposition because the way that you describe it, it's, it's a much more, how do I put this, a much more global view of the product in terms of you're not talking about it in terms of I have a peanut allergy and so I shouldn't have peanut butter. You're saying that it's, you know, the labor that goes into it, the, the crops, the sustainability. And so, you know, I'm sure that there are th- th- those overlap, but you're pretty much trying to make what people think of as a peanut butter, not necessarily as an alternative, but it isn't peanut butter. So how do you go about telling that story and who it, who is the exact target demographic for for these products? Yeah, and I think it's something that I think we've always had trouble with since day one, right? Um, because we're doing a multitude of different things for a multitude of different reasons. You know, yeah. uh, I can't get up and say, we're trying to end animal agriculture because what we're trying to do, <laughs> it's not better or worse. It's just probably somewhat more convoluted, right? Um, and so on the peanut allergy side, it really is, you know, it's a distinctly American problem, right? You know, peanut allergies in America are, you know, multitude times higher than the rest of the world, right? They're pulled out of schools, they're pulled out of manufacturing facilities, food service, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a kind of distinctly American problem. Um, And so for that, you know, I think that advertising is, you know, and how we message that is really, you know, you can bring a peanut butter sandwich or peanut butter anything, whether it be to work, to an event, home, um, and like, not be afraid of hurting the person sitting next to you, right? You know, in any school, the odds of someone in that school having a peanut allergy is 100%, right? Same thing with hotel breakfast buffets and lots of food service. And I think on the, you know, chocolate and coffee side, you know, it is a very different story, right? Um, it's a story about long-term accessibility. If we look at where in the world uh, chocolate consumption is growing per capita the highest and population growth is the highest, you know, those are the same places and it's all the developing world, right? You know, if you look at population growth and per capita consumption of coffee and chocolate in the U.S. and Europe, it's really not that high. All those growth areas are the developing world, whether it be India, Indonesia, Africa. And, you know, I th- we've kind of talked about this from day one as a team, but the people who need food tech and like these kind of food tech solutions, like aren't rich white people in San Francisco and New York City, right? It's, it's the parts of the world that, you know, can't afford the real thing. You know, if you look at a Cadbury bar in, in India, 
it's almost a dollar twenty cents, and the median income in India is around nineteen hundred U.S. dollars, right? Um, and so we were looking at these kind of more large scale accessibility issues while still being, and we can do that because of our cost profile, um, while being kind of radically more sustainable today. And so I think depending on the market, uh, we'll we'll advertise and message in very different ways. So it sounds like you have a very global ambition. Are you only in the U.S. right now? Yes. But so how, how soon until you want to take this elsewhere? Hopefully next year. Really? I think if all, I yeah, wanna... if all goes according to plan, uh, you'll be able to buy Voyage Foods products abroad. Yeah, next year. Okay, I, I want to get into that soon. Um, but can you just talk about the, the first product rollout? Because it was, was it this past summer when they f- you were first able to get them? Yeah. So uh, how did, like, what was the strategy with that? How did you go about sort of, I guess, storytelling? Because there's a lot, there's a lot in each of the products. And what what was the initial response? Yeah, so the, the, the first product we brought to market was, you know, the kind of Voyage Foods peanut-free spread, so to speak. Um, we launched it online initially, really just to get, you know, target customer data, et cetera, um, we're at Sprouts Market now, nationally, as of a week or two or something like that ago. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, it's super exciting. Um, and I think it was really, you know, looking at, you know, if you look at the allergen-free spread section, right, um, mm-hmm. it's a bunch of brown pastes. Um, and that's where kind of the different similarity, et cetera, from peanut butter ends, right? And if you think of peanuts, it's like this beautiful piece of Americana, right? You know, the National Peanut Festival in Dothan, Alabama, brings three times more people to it than Burning Man, right? You know, it's, it's a part of American culture. People don't love brown spreads, right? They love that feeling, right? And so I think a lot of our messaging has really been, you know, whether you have an allergy, someone in your family has an allergy, someone in your life has an allergy, you know, it's it's a responsible and cost-effective solution to, you know, peanut butter or these other kind of allergen-free brown spreads. Um, and because we have not launched our, you know, coffee and chocolate in retail yet, we can kind of avoid that whole conversation for now. <laughs> and because and I think, you know, our target consumers are going to be different depending on the product, right? And I think as a whole, you know, we want to bring better, like serve, make and serve better food for a better world and a better planet. But, you know, I think there are going to be different target consumers for these different products and that's okay. We're now going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I mean, the one thing that I noticed when I was going through the website is, you know, I, I, like you're talking about, uh, you know, peanut substitutes. Like I think of, uh, almond butter, cashew butter, and those are traditionally like $10 a jar. I remember when I yeah. grew up and I would see them and they're, they're insanely expensive. And I remember I one time by mistake bought one and I was just shocked at how much it was. But uh, at least at DTC, you're, it's four ninety nine is how much the, the peanut spread is, right? Is that correct? Yeah. And at Sprouts, I think it's between three ninety nine and four ninety nine. So it seems like that it's a, it seems like a very different type of profile in terms of it's not going for like the the whole food the the sort of like hippie like you know upwardly m- mobile millennial you know what I mean? I've said this I think in this conversation we'll probably say it again um, as as we go on as a company but it's really you know those people don't need food tech right they're they're always going to eat well um, and I think these kind of tech solutions really have to be you know for you know the less affluent because that's where we're going to make the biggest impact you know 
America buys 50% of its food at Walmart, you know, hopefully Walmart's soon in, in our journey, right? Um, we want to be where the masses are um, because that's where you're going to make the most impact. It's not with the 1%. Can you talk a little bit about the transition from, and I know we're only a week into it, so there's probably not much, like you, you don't, you don't have a much, lot of data to draw on, but you know, you, you launched online with the peanut spread, use that to get some some data about what's working, what's not, and then now you're in Sprout. So walk me through that entire process. Yeah, you know, we didn't want to launch nationally with a major national retailer without, you know, a lot of sensory data, you know, reviews, feedback, etc. Um, and we really used online as, you know, do people like these products? Do they actually taste and test better than everything else on the market? Is there repeat purchase, right? Do people kind of understand what the brand is? And from there, it was really, you know, let's talk to some retailers uh, and go for it, right? Um, and so I think transitionally wise, there haven't been, you know, I would love to come and say this was some David and Goliath story and it was really hard to get into retail and we've had all these issues. <laughs> but like, uh, I hate to say it, for better or for worse, that's not true. Um, and I think it's it's just been kind of a linear path of, you know, we got there, we have distribution, and it's so early, you know, we don't have velocity data yet. So I yeah. can't tell you how it's going. Um, but I think it'll be really interesting to see, especially in kind of one of these more higher-end grocers where, like, we're line-priced really below everything else in the alternative section. So, and that was my, so are you, are you in the alternative section? How are you thinking in terms of merchandising when there? Because you're sort of in the middle in terms of you are an alternative, but you're not necessarily like you want to get people's eyes who are looking at the regular peanut butters, I imagine. Yeah. So conveniently, they're like functionally in the same place. Usually they're a few feet yeah. away from each other. Um, yeah. So we, we like, I think eventually it'd be great to be in, once we have enough brand equity and people understand who we are and what we do, um, to be in the actual peanut butter section. But yeah, we're kind of in the alternative side now. I think uh, people, it would be very convoluted and confusing if we were in the actual peanut butter section when front of pack just says peanut free spread. Um, yeah. But sure. but yeah, I, I, and that's something, you know, we want to be very clear about, you know, we have an al- a fully allergen free facility, you know, everyone that works here has to sign, I can't bring a peanut butter sandwich to lunch, I can't bring peanut butter, like, we have a very strict policy, our supply chain, and so we want to be very clear, because the last thing we'd want to do is insinuate that there are peanuts in it, and then the actual peanut consumer might be frustrated, and then the people who actually want our product aren't going to buy it, so it, yeah, that, that clarity is very important. And so, what, in terms of, you know, what is the, the roadmap in terms of introducing the other products, when when are you? You know, you mentioned that it's probably going to be a much different type of messaging. When are you going to start attacking that? Yeah. So, and I don't think we've touched on this, but we're really mainly focused on the B two B ingredients supply. Um, okay. So, you know, retail is a small function of what this business will be. Um, it's you know the easiest, fastest way to get to market. But, you know, if we think of our product offerings and, you know, how can Voyage Foods make the most impact? You know, it's not necessarily us building the biggest brand, but it's, uh, think about, uh, like, Lint Chocolate, for example, has no peanuts in any of their products, in any of their facilities. How do we help them get incrementality and introduce, you know, America's favorite flavor to one of America's biggest chocolate companies, right? Um, how do we help these large manufacturers with their, you know, 
ESG numbers and margin profiles by selling them lower cost, climate friendly chocolate. Um, so I'm not going to speak to when you'll see our products, the coffee and chocolate in retail, but you will start seeing it um, next year, kind of co-branded, et cetera, in, in other food CPG, food service and other food products. Yeah. So, so you, that is, yeah, I wanted to get into the B2B. So pretty much it's working with other CPG brands and making it so that they have, you know, they fit that profile, but with the same flavors. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think as a whole, you know, we've seen companies all across the gamut, whether it's in, you know, beauty, food, clothing, et cetera, trying to make climate friendly versions of everything. Right. And, we want to help, you know, the people who are making food and beverage at the largest scale in the world um, live those values because they've all made those commitments to themselves. So, and can you walk me through just because, uh, you know, those are, they're two complementary but different types of sales paths. And so Absolutely. how much uh, in your conception, in your business plan, how is it important that Voyage have a brand name that is consumer known or is it? important that Voyage have a brand name that is business known? I think one, I think it's a self-fulfilling flywheel in some ways, right? Um, The commodity market's dangerous for a lot of reasons, right? Uh, People, you know, if you look at the flower commodity market or something like that, everyone races to the worst margin possible, right? And so that powered by Voyage Foods little symbol that will appear whether it's our peanut butter in, let's say, a Ben and Jerry's peanut butter ice cream or our chocolate chips in a Nestle Toll House cookie or something like that. Um, it's important for that to mean something, right? Um, and I think the more it means to consumers, uh, will mean the more it means to our customers, right? The more it means to our customers' consumers, the more it means to our customers, right? So I think I think both are important, but probably. The first thing that's important is really it being important to consumers at kind of the end purchase location before the companies that will buy it. And that's Got one it. of the reasons that we started with launching on a brand because it's you know a lot easier to tell that story at a consumer level when you're actually interacting with consumers versus you know just the business to business side. Got it. And how much, what are you doing on the marketing side to, you know, now that you, you know, you're in both retail, you are a DTC, you have these products, are you trying to make, you know, walk me through all of that? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of the standard, you know, shopper marketing in store, working with retailers, et cetera, you know, some online paid ads, um, some as sampling comes back, sampling in store, you know, I think, for products like ours where uh, price point really works and the product quality is really, you know, far above what the competitive set looks like, um, especially when you bring cost into account. Um, I think trial is going to be really big. Um, I think once people get it, they're like, oh, people have these aha moments. Um, But yeah, we're not reinventing any of the wheels of, you know, shopper marketing, trade marketing, you know, online ads, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, Got it. There are, there are a lot of things we're trying to reinvent. Um, and I think reinventing everything at once probably doesn't make any sense. Yeah, um, that's true. So, so we're doing uh, a kind of, you know, very standard, you know, CPG marketing play. Yeah. Got it. In terms of what you're thinking about, 
for, for the rest of the year? Is it, or if we're, I guess, for the next year? You mentioned how you're focusing on the B2B side for the chocolate and the coffee. Uh, are are you thinking about expanding into new products beyond that, or are you just going to be staying with these three for the for the time being? Yeah, there are other things that are, you know, I can see on the lab benches in front of me right now. Um, <laughs> my patent lawyers tell me I can't talk about anything, especially <laughs> on a recorded line with someone in media if it's uh, we don't have patent protection on it yet. Um, but yeah, there are, there are kind of a host of other things, whether it's in the spreads aisle uh, or kind of on much more of the targeted nutrition side or really kind of our next big focuses. Because, um, you know, yeah, from the get-go, you know, we really wanted to solve human and environmental health problems through food. Uh, we've looked at a lot of human pro- environmental problems um, and some things more on the allergen side. But, you know, the next the next big phase is really um, targeted human nutrition. Got it. Got it. Can you talk to me just about what you view the mix going forward, or at least for the next few weeks, to be in terms of B2B? Uh, versus versus retail, like your own product sales, like it sounds like B two B is your ultimate ambition, or like sort of what you think the 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 main thrust will be, and retail will be what drives that. How do you what do you see being over the next year? Like how do you see that going? Do you think re- retail will still be the predominant thing a year from now? What what are you thinking about? Uh, if I was betting on ourselves, which uh, I feel like you kind of have to do as someone sitting in my shoes, um, I think, you know, in the next six months, our B2B sales will be, you know, far exceed our retail sales. How can you talk about how are you going about this with B2B? What, what are the types of partners you're looking for? You mentioned Ben and Jerry's and Lint. Is it like pretty much just going for these really well-known companies that that are looking for new types of flavors? What, walk me through the strategy with, with getting, getting your foot in the door there. Yeah, so I think it really depends on, you know, the customer and their needs, right? You know, and it's it's been amazing to me, I think, to see, you know, how many of these large and small companies have really come to us, you know, how, how little outbound uh, outreach we've even had to do to get to where we are. Yeah, so I think, you know, if we look at, you know, especially at the upper echelons of, you know, the largest multinationals, right? A lot of them, whether it's to their shareholders, whether they're private companies, have made pretty strong, pretty stringent sustainability pledges, right? Um, We're in a very inflationary environment also. Um, And so things like the coffee and chocolate, where, you know, we're almost 90% less GHG emissions and the lowest cost chocolate supplier in the world right now, um, that becomes really attractive. Right. Um, every, every every company, big and small, you know, wants to have either higher margins or be able to pa- pass on those cost savings to their customers. Um, and there are a huge amount of companies who very much so uh, would like to make some sustainability claims, whether it's internally to shareholders and board or externally, you know, for their marketing. Right. And so I think those are, you know, on the coffee and chocolate side, the really key pieces is this, you know, cost environmental story. Um, and on the spread side, I think it's, there's kind of two very bifurcated, very different reasons, right? It's either people who are producing, let's say I have a cookie company and we have an allergen-free co-packer, but we've wanted to do a peanut butter toffee cookie for years. We think it'd be great. Our bench testing formulas seem fantastic. And we can offer them the ability to make a quote-unquote peanut butter cookie that has 
all the same enjoyment organoleptic characteristics of a peanut butter cookie, but their co-packer will let them do it, right? Um, and so I think that's a piece. And then on the other side, it's people who, you know, have peanuts in a lot of their SKUs and realize that they can get, you know, incremental re- revenue, right? You know, it's, you know, six plus percent of American households have someone with a very serious peanut allergy in them. Um, 6% doesn't sound like a huge amount, but if you think of like uh, a product like Reese's, right, uh, that's their expansion, right? You know, that could be, uh, uh, like, there are not that many more households that they could get into uh, without opening up that market of, you know, the 6% of households they can't be in. Um, so I think, you know, it's very different. And, like, I, I hate to sound convoluted, but I think it really depends very much so on the customer, right? Some people care much more about sustainability than cost. Some people care much more about cost than sustainability. Um, but I think the great thing for us and, you know, our solution to industry is really, you know, it we can, we can help empower companies in a lot of different ways and help them on their either operational efficiency, et cetera. Yeah. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. That was not convoluted at all. I wanted to to dive in. We're we're sort of almost out of time, but I wanted to dive in a little bit more. And this is more industry wide and maybe more of an opinion on your your front, but just because this is what you're thinking about every day. And it's something that I think about on the, the retail journalism side of things. But it's when we talk about ESG and we talk about sustainability, there, I feel like there are two sides of it where there are what consumers say and what consumers do, if oh, that yeah. makes any sense. Uh, and and so, and I think with you, with your company, it's really interesting because the companies, like they they do, you know, especially if they're, for example, a B Corp or something like that, they, they do have to answer to shareholders and they do want to make these claims and answer to them. But my question is, are do you think that actually does ladder down on the consumer side, let's say for coffee? Like, do you think someone's going to read a label and say, I'm going to buy a coffee alternative because I know there's such, you know, because the supply is dwindling and it has an environmental impact. Uh, do you do you think that there is a change afoot where people are actually, that is impacting their, their shopping patterns or has it not hit yet? So I think the answer is yes and no. Um, I think, you know, we've seen whether it's, you know, Everlane in clothes, whether it's seventh generation in soaps, right? Um, people want to vote with their dollar for more sustainable products. Um, I think one of the things I'm most proud about, you know, what the team at Voyage has been able to accomplish and really where our piece in this is, is it shouldn't have to be more expensive, right? If you look at, you know, and I think that's a huge barrier, right? If it's going to be much, much, much more expensive to get the more sustainable alternative, I, I don't think people, it will have, you know, this wide widespread adoption curve. Um, And so, you know, I think that barrier to entry just limits a huge amount of people. Um, And I think if you remove that barrier and make it at price parity, like who's going to, who's going to like in their right mind say no, right? Um, I think the very high-end chocolates, coffees, et cetera, where it's, you know, trace back to a plot of land and a farm, we can never compete with that. And we never should compete with that. You know, those are, those are beautiful, beautiful products, artisanal products, et cetera. But I think at this mass scale of, if you can have something that's not terrible for the environment, um, and it's either the same cost or lower, I think, you know, that barrier to entry is much lower. And I think that's why we're super excited to kind of change the paradigm or story of, you know, 
climate focused X has to be for, you know, wealthy blue coastal people, because I Mm -hmm. think a lot more people care than what it seems like today. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, we're just about out of time, but I always ask people at the end, what are, what would you say are your top, say, three priorities you have going into the year and next year for the business? What are you hoping to accomplish? And yeah, what what would you say? Yeah. So, you know, one of the probably most tangible, uh, you know, large goals, objectives of this next 12 months is getting facility number two up and running. Oh, wow. You know, we're, we're running out of a moderately sized facility in West Oakland now uh, that won't be able to sustain us as we grow. Um, and, you know, we're bringing our next facility online around this time next year. We'll have around 100 million pounds of annual capacity between the three products we've talked about. Uh, and we're really excited to be able to, you know, deliver to a lot more customers uh, in more business types and more locations around the world with that. Big priority number two is really, you know, now we have to fill that capacity, right? Um, Whether that on, you know, continued retail expansion, um, more on the B2B side, um, but really kind of filling that pipeline, et cetera. And I think the third is really, you know, how do we tell the story of what we're doing in in a larger way that can really connect with people? Because I think, you know, Voyage Foods as a whole is doing a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I, I've always thought, you know, can we be a pragmatic counterbalance to the food tech industry um, where, you know, cost and scale is is really there? And, you know, I think how do we tell that story to maybe help other people on similar journeys as us really, you know, look at this cost and scale bit because, the only way we're going to solve all these problems together, right, is is if we all look at a more macro worldview and less of a twenty dollar plant based burger, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, that's more of my personal mission versus the the company side. But but I think you know those are those are the few big things. Got it. Well, Adam, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you joining. Yeah, thanks so much. Really, really nice to talk to you, Cal. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.